Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and I'm your host, and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. On today's show, my friend Rahim. Uh, many of you may know him as Radio Rahim. I know him as my friend Rahim, or as I knew him when we first met, Raw. Um, radio and I met at a very specific time in our lives. Uh, we shared some incredible moments. I think we... I think uh, we sort of recognized in each other um, very similar souls, um, and we were able to see that even when at first we were probably both meeting each other through the lens of some, you know, just some some youthful frivolity, uh, some some sowing of the wild oats, some some hijinks, and just good natured tomfoolery. Um, but I think it's in recognizing and honoring each other and, and our just our similar experience in life. Um, I think that's the reason why we've stayed good friends for over a decade now. Uh, radio was thrust into, into I, I would almost, I would, I would venture to say celebrity. He was, he was thrust into the spotlight when he interviewed heavyweight champion of the world. Um, no longer, but one of the greatest, greatest heavyweights we have, Deontay Wilder. When he was interviewing him, and I would say Rahim assisted in um, Deontay giving what is now known as probably his greatest phrase ever, um, the highly memeable, highly recognized everywhere phrase, to this day, to this day. Um, If you haven't seen it, Google it. It's very well worth it. But Rahim seemed like the perfect person to have on my pod during these odd and heartbreaking and um, precarious and I don't know another word uh, during these times um, because Ra has always helped elucidate for me things that were not clear and helped me to better understand his experience and people like him, their experience. So I've always held him in such high regard and it felt like the perfect time to interview him. So I hope you enjoy it. Here is my friend, Radio Rahim. So here we are having a laugh. You just got a haircut. Uh, Yeah, that's kind of a laugh now because this thing has changed my life 
in every way. It changed my look. Mm. It changed my outlook. Oh, yeah. I'm looking in the mirror at the barber where I would like religiously go every week and a half, Josh. Not every three or four weeks or like keep it up when it starts to get shaggy. I was obsessive about like every hair. And then come like beginning of March, nobody knows that this is going to be as extreme as what it is. No one knows you're actually going to be at home for three fucking months. Yes. That, you know, people who you depend on to keep your life clean, cut, and exciting are all of a sudden also going to be home caring only about themselves. Selfish. None of the people who care about you and take care of you now are making you the priority. No, it's our own health and happiness. My former barber was like, I can't see you. I'm in line for a transplant and I'm immunocompromised. <laughs> and my response was, I'm so sorry, but my hair. <laughs> yes. I mean, I feel like we should get this done before your compromised condition yeah. stops you completely. I, I felt wrong when I said, but where are you on the list? Because <laughs> if you're close to the top... It's looking good, baby. Great. And you know what? If you're close to the bottom, we better get this in before you <laughs> fall off the list altogether. Yes. I think this is just, just makes perfect sense. It, it was somehow like, it br- made me grow up a little bit. Like, I did have to start doing shit for myself. Yes. Which I was very re- resistant to for like the whole first or three, last three decades of my life. First, when you first start in life. People are expected to do things for you. And that's, you know, their responsibility because you can't really walk well. Then you learn to speak, but you're not that good at it. You don't understand what bills are. And at some point, the responsibility is supposed to transfer to you. But I got really comfortable in the first phase. Like, you know, I felt that the first setup was the best for me. And I've been trying to keep that going ever since and been doing a great job at it until quarantine came. And then not only are every bit of my life my own responsibility, my mom became my responsibility. Right. You know, I mean, you, you're you a grown-up. Like, you have a wife and a child, and you've made, like, adult decisions. Sure. I avoided that at all costs. I have no wife. There are no children, none other way, none that don't know me. I, I've, I've avoided all forms of responsibility in that vein. And now all of a sudden... I have to make sure that my mom isn't going and hanging out with her friends while she's in school, getting her degree and doing her homework. And I'm going to the grocery store shopping because it's too dangerous for her. She's in the, you know, she's not, she's senior, certainly not elderly, but senior enough for it to be an issue. 65 plus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Just knocking on that 65 door and we can't take any chances. Right. Right. So what does that mean? I go take care of the grocery shopping. I go monitor her activity. She doesn't believe it at first. Right. I mean, most most older people think they already know everything and, and they've seen enough bullshit news to think that the news is bullshit to some degree. So she's like, well, you know, my friend doesn't have it. I don't have it. Why can't I go visit my friend? Right. Like, you know, it, it takes a while for everybody to understand that this is like a serious thing. But when it's your mom, you're not taking the kind of chances with her that you would take with yourself. So you got to go up there and be like, you know, no, stay in the house. No, you can't go see her. No, you can't make that run. Yes, I'll do it. But somehow she's still in charge, still her house. Yeah, well, that dynamic never stops. <laughs> I mean, it's weird too. I mean, I've been in the tougher place of like my mom who's 75 has become, and I think certain older people fall victim to like, she's lived a bit of a sedentary life. Mm. And 
it's definitely sort of been perpetuated over the last few years. And now Corona hits and I go, oh, I'm never getting you out of the fucking house. <laughs> like at this point, she's like, oh, I can't go. The CDC said so. And I'm like, take a walk down the hall. Be a little ambulatory, my 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 beautiful mother. And she's just like, you know what? I just want to err on the side of caution. And I'm like, you fucking, you're using the data against me. But we both know this is ridiculous. Hey, you know what? We should do like the old formula swap where like we're doing a podcast and one of us like gets hits on the gets hit on the head. Right. And we go home to each other's lives because yeah. this grass is always greener. I would take your mom in a heartbeat. Based on the kind of persistent, discouraging, I need to do with my very active, very young, energetic, like, <laughs> my mom wants to do everything. She's exactly the opposite. Are you it's saying, exhausting. Are you saying you're Jamie Lee Curtis and I'm Lindsay Lohan, or it's the other way around? Is this a Freaky Friday moment? <laughs> yes. yes <laughs> or are um, we just both Jodie Foster? I don't know. <laughs> isn't Jodie Foster what would happen if Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan had a baby? Like, is that the... Sounds about right. Right? That's the balance. It'd be a good melding of greatness. Yes. So I feel like, I, you know, I've never done this on the podcast, but, you know, we're speaking today, like one week after George Floyd was murdered. And it's, I feel like I should just like let you talk and I shouldn't talk. No, you should talk. In fact, everybody should talk because it's an, a moment for all of us. And just like the conversation started with quarantine and Corona and our own personal issues and the kind of lives that we live, which certainly um, are those of privilege, both mm. of us, uh, to look at us both, you might not assume that, but the truth is that we are sharing this moment collectively. It's not just for the people who have been brutalized by police their entire lives or fearful of that brutalization because we know it's real. If it hasn't happened to you, you, you live every day with that looming fear or threat hanging over your head that it could happen at any time, no matter who you are, what station in life you are, how much money you have in the moment that cop may not care, know, or even know, and then make it worse for you. There's no, there's no getting out of this. But I think the fallacy is that it's only our problem. It's your problem too. Yes. If you don't want to live in a world that exists that way, if you don't want your shit burned down or torn up or be and you and you love your friends, we've been friends a very long time. I assume you love me as a friend. I love you as a friend. You don't want me to live that kind of life. You don't right. want to participate in a world that. Uh, is constantly creating a fear in me or a danger looming over my head where you could lose your friend to some bullshit like that. So yeah, it's your moment too. You have to speak to, in fact, you have to speak mm. so that people understand that it's not just us. We're not some segment of America. We are America as you are America. And if this is a disease, if this is a cancer on this nation, then it's going to take all of the good blood cells to replace it, to get it out of there, to focus on what the problem is, to cleanse it, to clear it. We can't do this on our own, nor should we. We've all been a part of the society. Why shouldn't we all be a part of the solution? And I am one of those who believe if you're not a part of the solution, you are a part of the problem. Is there, you know, I think it makes so much sense what you're saying. And the idea of like, 
you know, it seems like this one-two punch coming from Corona to now this in the respect of like, we had become so divided and, and we've always been divided, but it, it for me, uh, on my short time on earth, it never felt more apparent than the last few years. And it felt like the the coastal parts of America were screaming at the middle and felt like there was such a separation. I said, we're all one organism. We're all part of one body. So if there's an infection in your toe, it will travel to your fucking heart. And it's easy to assume that there's like a separation and they live there and we live here. But what we're so, we're so, we're seeing so much of now is like, no, they will bring it right to your fucking front yard because you are not impervious to this and your silence or your inaction screams. You're, that, uh, I love the toe to heart analogy because it is a lack of communication at its root, right? I, <laughs> there are good people <laughs> on this side. And when I say this side, I mean the side that wants peace and harmony and wants to live their life, pursue happiness, be safe want the safety for their neighbors. There's no other side. There's no good other side to that. Like if you want harm on your neighbors, if you want unrest and danger to be uh, a reality for someone because of their skin color or the neighborhood they live in or how much money they have or don't have, then you're an insane piece of shit. Mm. Like that's not that you, you, there's no redeeming quality about that because if that is what you want for your neighbor, then it should be what is visited upon you. And there is a, I think, a part of this issue where the society that we live in is speaking past each other. Like you say, the coast, the middle, the south, the the north. We are having different experiences, but we are part of this same body, Mm. right? We all, we do, we are affected by each other. And our experiences, to a great degree, are more common in the most important ways than they are different. But the divisiveness of politics, the the inherent divisiveness of race because of what this country is founded on and in, like we can't speak past that shit. You can't just sweep that under the rug, paper it over, and then have a real conversation where we don't, air quotes, go there. You have to be willing to go there. You have to talk about our real pain. We have to talk about the original sin of this country. And we have to talk about where we are now. Everybody's got to kind of tell what they did and be willing to do better until you get there. We can, we're not going anywhere. And as long as we're trying to act like there's something redeeming about harming your fellow man or oppressing a people, or there is a, a, a lesser human in the human race then you or your community or your race or, or your economic status, your, your community is somehow separate from the community of humans, we're not going to get there. And I, all I see in, the, in these riots and all I see in the pain in the people's eyes that are out there are humans screaming from the inside. And there's going to be all elements. It's not going to be clean and tidy. It's not going to be neat and nice. Everyone's not going to speak with the same monolithic voice. There's not going to be some leader on a soapbox telling everybody what to do and not do. So, yeah, we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to figure out how to get there and exactly where we're going together. That's it. It's, you, you have to go through this moment. We are, we are, I think, being birthed into a new moment. 
And I've never heard a single woman say that childbirth wasn't painful. It's going to be painful. You have to go through something to get there. And I hope, I, I hope that's what we're going through. That's what will make this worth it. Like, you know what I mean? They talk about uh, people just now being shocked and awakened to police brutality and didn't know what was going on. And uh, the quote that I like that I've heard attributed to Will Smith is that um, racism isn't new. It's just being filmed. Like, it's not that this didn't exist. And it's just that you now know about it because you're seeing it for yourself and you didn't believe us. Yes. Well, now we're having a conversation. Now communication is happening. We had to prove it. So I guess it's proved now. And this is what happens. It cannot stand. This is an unsustainable environment. So let's tear that part down and build something sustainable that shelters us all. I think to your point, it's easy for people to make the assumption of whatever they don't see personally just isn't happening. And I always talk about this moment where I got hit on by a dude. And listen, I was flattered because this man was attractive. <laughs> and male or female, if you're good looking, I am honored that you're you're hitting on me. But I remember that he was very aggressive and it felt dangerous um, because I'd never been in that position. And it felt like I was giving him enough of a sort of a social cue to say I, I had no interest in this and to please leave me alone. And he wouldn't observe those cues. And he kept this really tough energy coming straight for me. And what it, what it elucidated for me was the idea of what a woman goes through 90% of the time, which is the unwanted advances of aggressive men. And I mentioned this to my wife who was like, oh, I walk around scared a lot. Now, I had never known of this because I figured I walk around with a certain level of, of impunity, of, of I, I lack of fear for my own safety. And to hear that from my wife made me realize that whether it's my wife, whether it's my friend who's African-American, there is an experience that I have no way of understanding unless that person explains it to me and I'm willing to hear it. And instead of turning my ears and using, and this kills me more than ever, and you'll hear this as some like weird rationalization of like, it's better than ever. It's better, well, at least it's not like it was. And I'm like, that fuck that rationalization. And so to your point, it's like, I, I feel like there are so many people that just felt like if they didn't see it, it wasn't happening. And what we're seeing now is, oh yes, it was happening. And it's a completely like, I, I would love for you to speak to this about like, for you, Ra, who like, you know, since I've known you, you've lived in Los Angeles. I know the people you roll with. I know the life you live. And a lot of people would want it. And yet it sounds like you're saying that there are many times where you walk around in fear of being unnecessarily harassed. Let me take your first point. Please. Initially, have you watched this Epstein doc? No, I, my buddy was just talking to me about it. Okay, it's horrific. Yes. It's horrific. When I asked you if you'd watch it, I was hoping you'd say yes, because I only made it halfway through the first episode, and it took me three stops and starts to do that. I listen to the podcast, so maybe I know <laughs> some of the general points. The massages, the weird fucking Palm Beach mansion, 200 for you, 200 for the next girl you bring. Yeah. Right. And the grossest part for me was the um, the impunity with which this man and his friends 
operated and to the heights uh, that his friends uh, are perched in society, which is what made him untouchable. Between the money and the connections, this guy was getting away with shit in plain sight. So there's the element that, okay, maybe genuinely didn't know, and I'm now analogating these two atrocities in society, where, okay, maybe you didn't know this was happening to black people. Maybe you really never saw it. You grew up in a community where the police were your friends, they were helpful, and the communities like that do exist. So you thought that all these colored people were just complaining, mm. right? Um, but there's the other side of that, that's the ruling class that is institutionally responsible for not just creating a system in which these police officers that aren't helping the community, that aren't good people, are able to function with impunity, mm. that are able to do these kind of atrocities, that are commit murder on people and not be held accountable and have no expectation of being held accountable. This other side, this what you are talking about that females go through, has been present in their lives pre-puberty. Yeah. They're in danger. They may not even know enough to be afraid at that age when an Epstein uh, approaches them pre-pubescent. They may be in a community that's safe. This guy lurked in safe, air quotes, safe communities in the upper crust where people where he was untouchable with people who lived there also thought that they were free from danger. And if there's a system, an institution, if there's a structure by which that kind of predatory behavior is protected, goes unaccounted, like the, uh, these people are not held accountable, much less punished for or should be fearful of being any kind of retribution for their actions, then they it will perpetuate. The system itself perpetuates the environment. So I grew up, yes, aware of an imminent danger, but I did not grow up in fear. Mm. I'm not in a mindset that I am vulnerable in the way that I know many, if not most people are. And that's a credit to my parents. That's a credit to the community from which I came. They made me very aware of a threat. And my personal experience with family members and friends and see, witnessing things at a very young age made threat very real to me. But when you're that age and you, and you are able to process it as what, a part of what life is, it actually removes the fear and brings awareness. Mm. And awareness brings a confidence and a fearlessness even when you're aware of an imminent danger. You are prepared to, to move in a world where that's a reality. And you can take the fear away from it. And I think a lot of what we're seeing right now are people throwing the shackles of fear off. It may not be expressed by everyone in a mature fashion right now, but what the energy is, what the energy that's coming off of them is that fear. It's that fear. Fuck it, man. Like, the, the conversation isn't working. That's not protecting me. You people are not uh, uh, guarding my gate. I feel like the, the beast is at the gate constantly. So I'm going to go out into the street and face the beast finally. And that's what you're seeing. 
and, they'll, and, and, and it will evolve. This isn't, this isn't gonna be every day, always, forever. They gotta burn that energy off, though. There's a lot of octane, a lot of gasoline. It's a lot of fire out there, and it'll burn off, and then when the dust settles, and the ashes settle, then we can build something, like I said, that's not only sustainable, but where fear is not intrinsic in the foundation of it. And so you, you, you watch that documentary, and then you watch what's happening right here in these streets, and you recognize that it's an institution. It's, there is a structure in place to protect something that I believe is a cancer, not just on this nation, but on this world. And I hope that right now we're going through a transitional phase to throw those shackles off. And you and I and people like us and people who look like us and different from us all see this as one struggle for the good. And if you're not on that side, then, then you're the enemy. Yeah. Do you, could you, if you had to venture to guess, how many people in the African-American community do you feel are of your mindset of what you just talked about who who didn't grow up feeling necessary necessarily that fear oh there i would say a, a lion a lion share of the people that i am in contact with on a regular basis really? like you know we run in circles of people who are like-minded to a degree you you know sure you kind of flock to a certain level of understanding you got famous friends <laughs> <laughs> you're well, doing well raheem let's be honest <laughs> okay but you're on the curious podcast <laughs> There's a lot of pressure to even becoming famous and holding on to your integrity and sure. being able to define who you are and not submitting to things that are beneath you. To get to a level of fame and success and keep that kind of thing intact, which are the kind of people I rock with, you got to be a strong person. Mm. Fear can't dominate you or you would have been broken. doesn't mean you're not famous. You can be broken and famous. Your spirit can be broken. Your integrity can be broken. You can, your, your true character can be right out the window. You can be a vacuous person with fame and success, but those are the people I roll with. When you talk about my friends, if you see me rocking with somebody, it's because they're an exemplary, exceptional person that's mm. incredibly strong. And we feed off of each other. And people that they don't know, people who've never met them, feed off of that energy and that example. And I think that we've raised a generation that has less fear than any pre before it. Like the, the children of, of these people and the generations coming up that they're that those kids are coming up with, they're not willing to go through life with that fear, with that stifling type of structure on their necks. They're not going to tolerate it. And they're getting out there. The babies are getting out there in the street and they're saying, not us. Yeah. We were not going to have that experience. We're not going to pass this burden on to our children. We're not going to live this way. And so I take inspiration from them. Like my friends, their kids inspire me. It's a new day, man. It's a new time. Like, and it couldn't have come at a, at a better time. The whole, the whole world stood still for a second. And then this is what happened in that vacuum, in that space. The we like you know what they say um, you know if, if something's not working have you have you tried unplugging it and plugging it back in right we unplugged the fucking world and you know what happened when we plugged it back in shock waves it this we came alive we're plugged in now and we're about to rewire the system to work this episode is brought to you by Shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot. 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You know, it's it, when you talk about the police, it's like, I, I think it's easy to forget. And, and people like to speak in blanketed terms. And I think the assumption is, it's like, no one wants to deal with, everyone wants to, on some level, have a certain level of trust and belief in the police because we don't want to deal with the with the the mundane bullshit that the police are dealing with most of the time. Like we want them to be effective and yes, for some of them it is a virtuous higher calling and they believe they are upholding the law. And for many of them it's a job you can get without a college degree that pays $65,000 <laughs> a year. And it's like and it's okay to be aware of both. And like Bill Burr had that great joke where he talked about Colin Kaepernick and he's like, you know, you talk to the wrong person about Colin Kaepernick kneeling and they're like, my fucking, my, my brother-in-law is a fucking cop. He's against cops. And it's like, <laughs> no, like, no, he's kneeling against fucking police brutality. He's like, he's going against my brother-in-law. Like, no, it's, and <clears throat> people like to talk in these blanketed statements in an effort in which not to look at the specifics. Yo, if we're dropping like celebrity bars, <laughs> Beyonce, when we protest racism, America, she said America is so racist that when we protest racism, they think we're protesting America. Right. That's the knee. That's wild. Like that, that's the problem. That's the institutional nature of it. Nobody's protesting your brother who's a good cop. Right. We want good Cops. But the problem is there's no room. Again, I'll use another one, a celebrity bar like Chris Rock. Like, you know, there's some jobs where everybody's got to be good. I just posted that. I just posted, you know, uh, a piece of his standup where he was making that point. He's like, like pilots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like most of our pilots like to land. That's not going to be good enough. Most of our cops are good. There's just a few bad apples. That's unacceptable. Right. And as long as your cousin, the good cop, thinks that his, his brotherhood of allegiance to all cops supersedes his duty to protect and serve society, then those bad cops will infect your brother's ability to do what his charge is, to actually be the best man or woman, much less cop, that he can be. He's got to be the guy. Those four cops or three cops are standing around while George was being murdered. Those are the cops that are supposed to stop that if this dude is wilding. If this guy is a murderer, if you're watching this happen, what were they doing? Keeping the public away and keeping their cop brother safe while he could complete murder. They was keeping the cops safe from the public, not the public safe. Period. And if it's a cop that you need to keep the public safe from, then that too is your charge to protect and serve the public, not each other (laughs) from the public, not each other from accountability. That's where the mind has to change. That's where the thinking has to change. Everybody who is applauding and lauding the police officers who do their job well, who are coming with positive spirit, who have the right intentions, who serve and protect the community, uh, I 
agree with that. I applaud them as well. You just have to complete the job. And that means that you also have to police the police. Yeah. Most first and foremost, in fact, those are your brothers, right? This is these are people who you see what they do when no one's watching. And if you're not policing them, then you're really not policing anybody effectively because you're running with criminals. You're running with murderers. You're protecting an element of crime that is untouchable because you're the one who's supposed to be the first line of defense. Does it make you fearful? Because I feel like, you know, I'm watching this on social media and, you know, everyone is speaking up and... And yet my fear is, and I always talk about this, and and it's a big reason why there's a part of me that hates the Twitter sphere. And it's because I always say, fuck your hot take on Twitter because you're not going to vote November 8th. Like, I don't care how woke you are. You're not going to fucking vote. And then, and all of this, all your 140 characters are useless. And so is there a part of you that in seeing this reaction on social media right now is saying like, this is great, but what about in three months? This is great, and what about in three months? Yes. And what about in a, a two years after that? And in your local elections, the we're not just talking national elections. Mm. We're not just talking Congress and, and president. We're you can make affect change in your neighborhood, your district person, your council people, your judges, the prosecutors, the the district attorneys. Like if you want to make a a change within the system and you want to have some kind of sustainable voice inside the politics of your community and how it's policed, then you have an opportunity to select your representatives and select the people who will be in power and in position to make decisions when someone needs to be arrested, who clearly needs to be arrested. Well, then you should you should know who the person is right off the top of your head that's responsible for making sure that arrest happens. Because you know who does know? The police. They know who the prosecutors are. They know who the district attorneys are. They know who the judges are. They know who is running the system. And if you don't, well, of course you're going to be wildly disadvantaged when you need to call on that system to protect you. Well, it's like when Corona hit and everyone's like, I want to go out and exercise. I'm like, what happened the last 10 years? (laughs) You've been sitting on your goddamn couch. It's like people want to complain, but when it comes to actually having like the slightest amount of interaction with their democracy, they're like, I'm just so inundated. I'm like, fuck you inundated. Like, listen, I think mail-in voting should 100% be a thing, but I also think that like voting should be a national fucking holiday and that I don't care whether you have to wait. You will meet the most lovely people outside the community center while you're online for eight hours waiting to get into that fucking ballot station. Just wait. (laughs) Just go. (laughs) One day. Yo, for those who don't know, because maybe like some of you, maybe some of you didn't grow up with Josh Peck (laughs) and don't know that this like uh, a chiseled Adonis that sits before <laughs> me wasn't always as chiseled. It was like more of a chubby cuteness. It's and true. I was there for the transition and he just did like a wild flex on you guys. I just wanted you to know, cause I heard it. I don't Thank know if you, you heard it. I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, um, what we're talking about beyond the politics of the moment is also personal responsibility. And I have to tell you that the transition that you've made Physically, forget about like growing up, being a mature adult, starting a family, (laughs) 
doing talking on this podcast about serious shit, being a funny guy, keeping a child actor proving that a person can actually contain their mental capacity well into adulthood and still well, not, be productive. Not when we first met, but, but yes, yeah, <laughs> thank but you. Then we all go through the tunnel. When we first met is where America is now. Okay? <laughs> right, it's only fair. we know that. <laughs> but what we sit, what sits before us now, are, are some polished, some polished individual. Yes, and personal responsibility. It starts at home with yourself. Uh, you know, like my mother said, if you want to change the world, start by making your bed every day. Start there. You know what yeah. I mean? Start like get out on these streets, say what you have to say, do what you have to do, recognize the moment, call, help hold people accountable, but start with yourself. Hold yourself accountable. Make sure that your mind is clear, that your body is free from the cancer, metaphoric and literal, obviously. Yes. We all now have an opportunity. We had, what, two months? Like you said, listen, I don't begrudge you guys who are, like, you know, exercising now. Do it safely. Do it responsibly. But if you're taking this moment to, like, better yourself, to you want to come out on the other end of this tunnel like a new person with better goals, clear-minded, body is clean... By all means, I don't think you have any excuse not to do that. What else do you have to do? Yeah. What else do you have time to do but improve yourself? And for a while, we spent weeks and weeks, a couple of months, either indulging ourselves, improving ourselves, finding ourselves, realizing what wasn't what what wasn't important, kind of taking account of the world that we had built for ourselves while we were forced to stand there in the mirror and look at ourselves for a few weeks. And then it spilled out into the street. Now I think... We've done a few things collectively. I think the first one was Tiger King. We all decided yes. collectively that we were going to watch that show. Oh, my God. <laughs> and we've done a few things since then collectively. And uh, this is just the most recent one of them. And they keep getting better. I think, like, I really believe, Josh, like, at the other side of this experience, we will be not just better people individually. Like, you and I, we're having some epic uh times mm. like real life shit is happening but as a collective as a as a community a state a country the world yo we're going to be better we're going to we're going to seize this moment there's that's where my hope is that's where my all my inspirational vibes come from is like yo i believe in us as a as a human entity on this planet we're going to seize the moment and if we don't those aliens that they just kind of like told you about in Brazil and didn't mention anything else beyond it they're just gonna come tell you like, you know what you, we gave you people a chance you just you can't fucking figure it out it's our planet now I I get I can't believe that that's like 18th on Twitter trending right now like yes. they really buried that good <laughs> I mean you're right and it's also like by the way massive systemic change in this country hmm. this is kind of how we do like yeah. we don't do it comfortably like revolutionary war like <laughs> civil war like at every turn like we meet like this is just how our country reacts we are so strong-willed and we were all empowered with this idea of like individual freedom and the other side of the beauty of that freedom is this idea that like people don't go quietly like this is how we literally we have to 
it's like we we're we're literally a fucking country of unicorns and we have to cut <laughs> off like or yeah maybe i won't go so mythological but we're like we're we're like any great horned beast like we shed the horns and they're majestic and we regrow them like it has to be cut off like we don't do things in a smooth we just don't do this in in a quiet way yeah that's that's not how it's done there will there will be blood there I mean, will be pain. There will be suffering. And it won't all be fair. It won't all be right. We're not going to figure it out on day one. And it's not going to be like the end of some triumphant movie with a fucking speech on a horse. Yes. It's going to be real life shit. And it has been up until this point. So why would it be any different now? It's time for change. It's transition. And every community has its, has its charge. Right now, it seems hectic. It's intense. It's hot. Like, we're in the fucking spotlight of it. The fires are burning bright. But again, this is a phase of it. And what I noticed right before this became the everything was my artist friends, my uh, people who are skilled at expressing themselves through entertainment, performance, music, they communicate. And that way, we're going through different kinds of changes. Well, how am I going to express myself? My show is, you know, indefinitely on hiatus. Like, right. uh, n- nobody's shooting anything. Uh, studios, if you don't have a studio in your house, you're kind of fucked. Like, uh, well, how am I going to get this energy off? And I'm curious, like, for your experience, wh- where do you think the artist community takes this? Like, what does this moment mean for that type, that genre of expression? What, what what's 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 happening now? How does this affect and change what we will see on that front? I I mean you I, I'm interested to hear how you feel how the Twitter sort of um, the Twitter storm and the social media of it all whether it really progresses things or it's like a a sort of artificial salve to what is not actually correcting the problem. Because I feel if we are artists, our greatest gift in inspiring any change is to use our art. And then Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg created a pipeline in which that you could talk to billions of people in one fell swoop and we stopped creating and we started shouting. And thus we rendered ourselves for the most part, uh, pretty powerless because we're not, we're not the shouters. Like you can use, I, I, I think whenever I hear someone on social media and like, these are people who I really respect, great writers, great performers. And I see they've got 90,000 tweets. I'm like too much time, too much time on this thing. Cause like, what would it be if you had 20,000 tweets and you spent all that other time tweeting, creating a great piece of work that didn't feel like someone was screaming at them, but instead inspired them to come to the to, to sort of come to the, the solution on their own, right? Like people want to be led, but they don't want it to be straight pointed out. Like you can lead the audience, but you can't bark at them. And that's just like mm. storytelling. An audience will feel like a fucking genius if you put like the, if, if, if in the murder mystery, you very simply lay out how the person could have done it, but you allow the audience to come up with it on them for themselves. That's why everyone likes Law & Order fucking SVU. Cause they're like, I know who did it by fucking 40 minutes. That's not random. That's Dick Wolf's genius. He's like, I'm going to empower these schmucks to feel really fucking savvy. So similarly, 
I think Ryan Johnson did a great job of it with Knives Out last year, which was like this blockbuster movie that was like thoroughly enjoyable to watch. And the undertones of it was about class warfare and socioeconomic disparity. And it was like, well, I got to just walk away with that experience feeling like I learned something. I, I feel slightly more empowered to think in, a, in an interesting way. And I was entertained because I think most of the world hears people at the Academy Awards or on Twitter and hears them shout at them. And, and they think, just go back to making fucking movies. I didn't ask you. I'm like, can't, don't fuck up your movies for me. I know people whose politics I don't necessarily agree with, but I know that, that they are good people who are like, I can't watch a Robert De Niro movie anymore. Now, granted, when you're Robert De Niro, fucking who am I to judge? <laughs> I, I, I can't even begin to, you know, uh, criticize in any way. God bless you, Bob. Thank you for your great work. But like, they're like, I can't watch it anymore because all I think about is his politics at, at every moment. And I think that happens with a lot of people. Well, what do you think? That's a juvenile way to approach art. Yeah. We all have entertainers or artists that we love their work. And if you're not like so self-involved and self-righteous and juvenile yeah. that you can't separate, sometimes you got to separate the person, the individual from their work. And that person has a right to be an individual and you have the right to not like them. And to be fair, like if you don't like them as an individual so much that you're going to deny yourself the something they produce that you do like, well, that's just a sacrifice on your part. Sure. It's not like, oh, I can't watch Robert De Niro anymore because I don't like his politics. But do you enjoy his fucking performances in the film? Are you not going to watch a film that you enjoy from one of the best actors that you could possibly be witnessing and experience the work of because you don't like his feelings on Trump? Well, okay, I can respect you not buying that ticket. In fact, you shut the fuck up. Right. I, I don't want to hear your shit about Robert De Niro because I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I'm watching the movie. I'm going to go to the movie. I'm not, not going to go because you don't like who the guy is. Everybody gets to make that choice for themselves. But I say, like, it, it over. I, I, there are numerous examples. I won't call their names, but each person, I think, has to make that decision for themselves. It doesn't necessarily take away from the art of the individual, even if the person themselves is flawed. Because we're all flawed, and you can decide to what degree you can tolerate someone's flaws. I personally, you know how I guard against that? I don't want to know who you are necessarily. That's exactly right. You know what I mean? Like I will allow you space to be an individual human separate and apart from the work you do and what you offer the world as a product, right? I don't know who made these boots I'm wearing. I don't know what his politics are. They're wildly comfortable, kind of fashionable. I feel powerful in them. The guy who made them or woman who made them might be a piece of shit. I don't want to know because I like the boots too much. I have the privilege and the... the I have, I have the, them in brown. Yes. I don't, I don't want to know if that person also made brown. <laughs> I mean, I, I just think that you... I think that if you spend... 
100,000 tweets alienating your audience instead of creating a piece of art that could have served it up to people that perhaps didn't share your politics in a way that was more accessible for them to um, being become enlightened against their will or without their knowing. I think that's art of a higher order than just being able to write a hot take at 100. I think it's a waste of your superpowers if you're an artist. Right. And I think that as a community of um, consumers of art, as even the artists themselves are, we all consume, we all consume art. I think we could be evolved and again, being able to separate, allow people to be dimensional. People are not monolithic, not one thing. And they're not, like, if we were able to accept each other, listen to each other and experience people more fully, if this is really an artist whose work you enjoy, then get to understand if you care enough right. what it is that is the makeup of that person. Maybe don't take the one thing that you're judging them on and let it corrupt everything else, or at least allow it to inform what you're looking at that they produce. You don't have to accept everything about everyone to for them to be okay. There are parts of people that you don't necessarily have to accept. Now, a part of someone that if it's uh, predatory, like what we were discussing earlier, if they're a threat or endangering others, harming people. Well, obviously, that's a different conversation. Now we're right. dealing with something entirely different. But if you're just talking about their attitudes, the, you know, where, they, where you feel like they've evolved intellectually, well, I would, I would challenge you to evolve intellectually yourself and understand that people are complicated. And if you are that interested in someone's opinion, if, you've, if you're letting it take up that much space in your brain, then maybe you should take the time to better understand why their brain is wired the way it is. And it may help you understand why you think the way you do as well. I don't like, I don't like, I don't even think I am um, spoken of in the realm of artists. I, I don't, I'm not an artist, right? I don't, I don't, I don't see myself that way. What I do in journalism and broadcasting and sports, uh, which is my beat, boxing, is create an atmosphere when I'm doing my best to, to accomplish this and it's done well. I think things are put into the world from the soul, from the spirit of the individual to whom I'm speaking or who I'm interviewing. My most important and first job in any interview is to get out of the way and allow the person who I'm speaking to to come across as authentic as they are comfortable being. And once that is the, the table set, then my job sometimes is to, come, is to push them to be even more authentic than they may be comfortable being, to get out of them what is real and sincere and genuine, to create moments that the audience who don't know these people, especially sports figures, boxers in particular, are very are, are perceived very one-dimensionally. You yeah. only you're so invested in their performance, their wins, their losses, their statistics, what they do for your team, whether or not they beat the guy that you hate because you, you're you're cheering for them from the ringside or sidelines that you don't think about all that goes into the makeup of being that individual, what drives them, what what pushes them past the, 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 the breaking point to success, what makes them better than the guy next to them or across from them or that they're in competition with or even their own teammates. If you can get into the psyche and the experience, the heart of a, a figure who is looked at as one-dimensional, then the connection that that person's able to make to the audience 
and in the community at, at large, you can't ever predict what the impact will be. I mean, obviously, the most uh, popular or most recognizable moment of which I speak would be the to this day moment with Deontay Wilder. It's that kind of thing that you don't know what is going to come out of somebody's spirit until you open the door. And my job is just opening the door. I'm not there to paint it. I'm not there to characterize it. I'm not there to tell you what you can feel and can't feel, what's right to say, what's wrong to say. But if the just the moment allows for the audience to connect to an individual and their art, because sports is art as well. Yes. There is, there is, everyone's expressing themselves. And the kind of investment that we have in sports figures, I think, would be much more valuable if we didn't allow these people to come and go live and die by the statistics and the number on their Jersey and the championship rings or trophies or belts that they hold, but recognize people as full human beings. And if you're cheering for them, if you're invested in them, they're doing something for you. If they're contributing to your life and you care, find out who they are, what, what brought that part that you connect to them on the surface about and it make that connection deeper in yourself. That might bring out the champion in you. And that is my charge. I don't know much of anything John Lennon has ever said, except other than like, I'm tired, Yoko. But, like, <laughs> but I know the lyrics of Imagine, you know, and I know... You know, I I know that love is all you need. <laughs> and, and so in that respect, I just think that, you know, when when talking about the artist community specifically, and, and like it, it, he sort of embodies it beautifully. I remember Steve Martin talked about it when he stopped tweeting and he was sort of like the OG tweeter. And of course, everything he was tweeting out was genius. He just eventually said, why, why am I wasting it here? <laughs> He's like, these are good jokes. And like... <laughs> And, you know, one of your close friends, Dave Chappelle, like, does he have any social media? Zero. Exactly. Because, <laughs> like, why waste it there, right? I mean, I don't know what his what his reasoning, but, like, and, and I'm sure you don't want to speak for him, but, like, I just, I would venture to guess, and it would be a guess, would be, like, I, I would, I, you know, he can he can collect all this stuff. He can refine it. He can make sure he's clear about the way in which he's thinking about it and create this great art that will be so effective instead of a tweet that is inevitably fucking fast food, man. It is social media is fast food. It feels good in the moment, but you'll never, you'll never remember your best meal at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Dave Chappelle creates moments. The, I mean, more than I could count, much less, recount to you are the litany of incredible, timeless, priceless moments that could never be recreated ever that I now like get to carry around like a treasure chest uh, in my spirit. And he's done that for so many countless people that may be right at the same event with me, having the same um, moment in time. And we might 
describe it to each other and have entirely different stories as to what happened on that night or day or in that show or on that trip or whatever it was. Uh, I believe that he is guarding real life. He likes to exist in real life. Like these moments are real and you carry them and you experience them for yourself in real time. And the minute you take out a phone, you turn on your camera, you, you put a wall, you put a screen between you and reality. So uh, I'm only speaking for myself as the experience I've had in his company and in environments that he creates that I wouldn't trade that to have a single second of it stored on my phone. Right. As to what I have now stored in my soul. That's what Dave Chappelle creates for me. And I don't need to see 140 characters to uh, relive it because it doesn't exist there. It doesn't exist in that, that plane of existence. It exists in real life. It's energy that I, something that happened five years ago in the most uh, unexpected moment I could pull on that experience where I was paying attention. I was alert because nobody had their phones up. I was alert because I wasn't worried about trying to tweet or hashtag it or at someone or here's where I, you know what I mean? Phone's locked up. You got to pay attention. You got to be in that moment. There's things that I experienced, things that I carry with me, things I can draw on because I was present that I can now draw on in this present moment. I, you know, that to me is everything. That's, that's that's the jam. That's the hokey pokey, as you would say. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that I, I think that perfectly encapsulates sort of, uh, you know, just sort of the idea. And I, and I think you know you want to be famous enough to be able to supersede supersede social media. And and there are a few who can do it. And I think you have to be wary of the dopamine hit that social media <laughs> gives you. And the idea of you ever had a task, like something you just didn't want to do, had to write something or just like return an email and just like there was going to require some thought and you sitting down and all of a sudden you notice that your apartment got really clean. <laughs> Anything but. Yeah. Anything but. Right. And that's what Twitter gives you this like bullshit dopamine hit of, of accomplishment, but you didn't accomplish anything like because you didn't sit down and do like the hard work of writing that song. I mean, it's literally fucking, it speaks to our lowest nature of ADD culture because it's so short. Like if you had to write a, trust me, if Twitter was blog posts, there would be 10% as many people, or there would be 10% in total of what Twitter is now on the platform. Cause they'd be like, I have to write an essay. This is school. <laughs> like it, 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 that's the problem. I remember when I, when I transferred, you know, I spent the last five years getting pretty, you know, known on social media and creating on there. And I think it was a marriage of a lack of opportunity in the sort of traditional world melding with an idea of like, I've been doing this for 20 years since I was a kid. And my frustration of always being at the behest of the gatekeepers was uh, overwhelming. And all of a sudden being able to go straight to the audience felt empowering. But of course, the optics of that were people looking at me going, you're on Instagram? My fucking uncle's on Instagram. <laughs> like, who gives a shit? And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, your uncle, God bless him, is not posting what I'm posting. Like, I'm putting some real work and artistry into this. They're like, yeah, but the playing field's the same, my friend. <laughs> like, Josh, 
I'm going to remind you now of a moment that was pivotal in my life, and I don't even know if you remember it. Okay? I'm in your living room. <laughs> eh, let's call it 2.47 a.m. <laughs> on any given weekday. And as we know, nothing good happens after 11. <laughs> You're sitting by the computer. We're milling about, you know, whatnot. And you're fascinated <laughs> by something. It's annoying me because I would rather us, like, have a drink or, like, continue to mill about with what we're up to. <laughs> and you're like, bro, you have to see this. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. What the fuck, bro? What? 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 This, you can post, like, you can just put your own videos out. You can just post, like, you can shoot something and just put it, like, out. Like, right here. I'd never fucking heard of YouTube before. You are the person, you're the first person that was ever like, yo, have you heard of this YouTube thing? I had no idea in that moment how that platform would change my life. Like, yeah. no idea. You know, um, I had already covered boxing before. That was like, you know what I mean? We were, we were in a moment in our lives at that point, but... Prior to that, I was already obviously in the boxing community and covered it and all this stuff. And I didn't realize the power right then and there of being able to reach an audience directly to not need to get the permission of a studio or a network or a, a contract to an agent or somebody to say, you're allowed to have a voice here. You're allowed to present content here because we say it's valuable or worthy or we say that you're a part of the group of people who are now permitted to have a voice. No, there's a place where I can put something there and the people who are in that place can decide its value themselves. I can reach people whom were behind a barrier on mass before. That's what YouTube meant for me. It meant that my coverage of the sport ultimately could be delivered straight to the people who love it. And boxing had been wildly, and to this day, <laughs> is still wildly underserved by the mass media market. Like, there are no, there's not a ton of boxing shows on any of the major networks. You can, you can turn on ESPN or Fox Sports or any of these platforms, any of these channels, networks, and have named three or four NFL shows just dedicated to what's happening in the league. NBA breakdowns, arguments, team breakdowns, <laughs> training camp, draft, it, uh, Major League Baseball. All of these major sports have that kind of attention given to them on all tiers at all times, with varying opinions, varying structures of shows, that kind of in-depth coverage. Do you Boxing think it's because it's not seasonal? Is a is the stepchild. It's because it's a poor man's sport. It's not. It's not seasonal. It's not organized. What better for a sports channel than a sport that never has an off season? It's right. the antithesis of what of of that. I mean, the off the 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 non-seasonal aspect of it makes it better, more profitable year round. It never stops. It's global. It's you're, you're an actual world champion when you're a boxing champion because you are competing with people from all over the world always. Yes. It's a real thing that has never 
been given the attention on a regular basis from major, major networks that it deserves. Even when it was like the wide world of sports on ABC and you were getting fights for free in your home and all that, I would say even then it was under service because just the, the availability of media at that point couldn't possibly serve the global nature of boxing. That's why there's all these pockets of and cultural uh, communities of boxing all over the world, there's no country, there's no community that doesn't have hand-to-hand combat sports in some way or another. And boxing is everywhere. And the in the internet, and in my case, YouTube in particular, has given me an opportunity to travel the world, show you fighters from all over different cultures, different socioeconomic classes, different levels of competition, and styles, and uh, it... it it, it made a conversation feasible with that transcended language even. Because I like to say we're, or the, boxing is the only sport we're all, know, we're all born knowing how to play. Everybody that is birthed has a little fight in them. Do you think it's also the, that people have uh, sort of false opinions about the judging that they feel, I mean, granted, look, fucking, we've seen it so many times in the NFL specifically, where like a bad, a bad call will ruin someone's season. But I think there's like this weird, and like, I've never, you, you could speak to it more intelligently. Like I've seen bad judging. I've never seen like the most egregious bad, Mm. bad judging. But I think I've heard that said before of people like, ah, you know, it's just like, even, you know, even the best guy doesn't necessarily win. What kind of, what kind of a sport is that? It is an inevitable reality in boxing that you're going to run into a decision you disagree with, and you will run into decisions that nobody agrees with, except the judge who put that card together. And until you remove the human element of fallacy out of judging, I don't know how you can get around that, but it's in every sport. Like there's, I don't know of any sport. You can correct me if I'm wrong as far as like major sports anyway, whether, where there isn't, where the judging is completely unbiased uh, or, or yeah, just perfect. Well, or, or Lacking even error. <clears throat> uh, mechanical or like, you know, we're, we're all just using machines. Like, okay, now we use machines sometimes in uh, tennis. Yeah. To call the ball in or out, whatnot. I remember when that was like not a thing. And it's not a universal thing. Like there's, there, for whatever reason, there's some element of human error in every sport making calls for refs and judges for judging. The Olympics is notorious. I mean, we all know that that's a thing. Why that's a thing? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why we haven't evolved in the sport with judging. And I think there's, a many, there's many elements that are problematic, like how you become a judge, um, whether or not when it's you, so random, right? When you have a bad call, if there is a way to get you out of judging, like when you're one of those, if you're a judge where nobody agrees with the call, you can't explain it. You have one of those really, I think you should be out, but if you get two or three of those, there's no way you should ever be allowed to pick up a pencil and score and, and scorecard again. But there's so with technology, there are so many ways that we could get this right. So much more of the time that I just don't know why we don't utilize it. I don't know that even the ringside perspective from one side of the ring based on one judge's eyes and what he saw, what he didn't see is the most accurate account of what happened. When I watch fights ringside, which 
is how I spend most of my life, I still go home and watch it on television. And there are many occasions on which I see two different fights. But if I were a judge, if I was tasked with being able to judge what was happening in that ring, I would want the advantage of replay. I would want all the angles. I would want to be able to zoom in. I would want to be able to know that what I thought I saw is what happened. And then then score the fight that way. As an observer, you can never rewatch a fight ringside. So it's an experience that is well worth it. I wouldn't trade that to watch a, a fight on TV. But if I was tasked with judging, I would have them up in a booth somewhere in the arena watching the fight. Tell them, like, that's that's the most accurate way to see what happened. And they don't get any of that. No replay. None of that. They, they don't even have monitors? No. Really? No. That's fucking insane. No, no monitors, no replays. I mean, thank God, no, uh, you know, commentator in their ear. All they have is their naked eyes and what instructions are given by the referee, whether or not that was a knockdown, whether or not the cut was created by a headbutt, like that kind of stuff. Sure. But even that, you don't get a replay. If you if you misheard him or didn't understand what was happening, I don't even think the judges can be like, hey, hold on. I didn't get that. What? Right. You know, it's it's arcane. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Kenny, Kenny, I didn't hear it. What would you call it? <laughs> right. Yeah. That, yeah. So uh, I, I think in boxing especially, but all sports could probably use just some like, hey, let's get it right. Let's do right. whatever it requires to get it right. How, how are you doing on time? Are you okay? Where am I going? Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure that's awesome. You're like, there's a fucking pandemic and riots. <laughs> like, right. By the way, we're even past curfew. I don't know if we're allowed to leave. I, yeah. I hope we brought blankets and pillows because <laughs> we're solid. I'll give you a, I'll give you a ride. <laughs> I, so for the people who don't know, and, and you told this story so well on, on Rogan, but I would imagine there are certain people who, I, I mean, I can't imagine who it would be that would listen to me and not Rogan. But, you know, will you retell that Deontay Wilder story? And and for anyone who doesn't know, you know, Deontay Wilder, one of the greatest heavyweights we have right now. And I mean, I feel like you have you've sort of you've told the audience. But for anyone who doesn't know who the great radio Raheem is, will you sort of speak to that in your your rise as one of the best in, in boxing when it comes to journalism and spec and uh, and announcing? Let me approach it from this perspective in context of what we've been talking about, right? Social media, the need for people to be able to communicate across racial, cultural, socioeconomic boundaries, and then our personal journey of betterment, yeah? Boxing was something that was present very early in my life. It was, I have that moment of being a kid, not really understanding the sport I was watching. I didn't have a dad sitting down with me like, hey, watch this fire. Here's my favorite guy. Here's the big fight. Come come sit on my lap, kid. And we're going to experience this. As a, a young man, I found, a very young man, like a child, I found myself attracted to things that I found on my own in the world. So it gave me an opportunity to decide what I liked and what spoke to me, and what I was interested in, without some big brother, I'm an only child, or, or, or even a dad, telling me what I was supposed to like, or what I should like about it, or not like about it. So, I mean, I have a vivid memory of, like, jumping on my bed, 
with the neighbor's kid. Um, I had a TV in my room, and the TV was just on. It's not like I intentionally turned it a channel or anything. And we were jumping around playing, like, you know, totally oblivious to the world around us. And the television had a Marvin Hagler fight on it. Now, I, I, I can't tell you why, what channel was on. Like, mind you, this is a like a early childhood memory. And I remember stopping jumping. And he, can you imagine getting a child to stop jumping on a bed? Like how whatever got his attention, how uh, captivating that must be. Because I, I, I remember like uh, mom was like in the kitchen. She, you know, I'm not allowed to jump on the bed. She can't hear us. I got a friend over. We're having a swell time. Oh, yeah. It's the epitome of childhood frivolity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I escape all of that goodness and joy and am transfixed with these two guys. I can still see Marvin like if he's on this TV right here. Trading shots. They look like gods. They were sh- shimmering with sweat, powerful, like beating each other within what it seemed like an inch of their lives and everything was on the line. And I understood that at that age without anyone explaining it to me. And that's why I say, like, I think the, the inherent fight that's in all of us is what makes boxing the universal sport. And from that moment on, I wanted to know more. I wanted to see more. I, I wanted to participate in that activity in some way. And what is odd is I never wanted to be a boxer. It didn't hit me that way. But I knew this is something I needed to be a part of. I didn't necessarily need to do it. Because you're like the Larry David of boxing. <laughs> you, are, <laughs> you are a gentle soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have my quirks. <laughs> but, so uh, from that moment on, I was like uh, intent on then seeking out boxing. I would ask my mom and I had uncles and like, we had neighbors and they had dads. And so I would find my way in front of, um, I would find my way in front of fights. And uh, I was in high school now and you know, I, I was doing debate and I was, uh, I had performed at a young age. I was doing like theater in fifth grade and I was always performing on a stage. I was always seeking attention and putting out like um, some type of art in the performance vein. And I found out that there was a radio station on my campus in high school in 10th grade. <clears throat> and it was in the basement. And the reason I even, got that information was because on the roof of the school, there's this huge tower, like a radio tower. Yeah. And I didn't know what that was up there for. And it, it, it you know, high school kid, it took you two years to even notice. <laughs> it was like, you know, what, what, what's up with that? I don't know. I asked some faculty member like, Oh, that's the radio tower. Well, what radio? Like where, where, what is that linked to? It's like, Oh, in the basement, there's an old radio station. We don't use it anymore, but it's linked to that. So, like, as though I was in some coming-of-age 80s movie, I'm like, can you let me in? You walk in, and it's dark. There's a fucking layer of dust on all the equipment. You turn on the lights. You blow that layer of dust off. And the faculty member's like, yeah, this kid's wasting my fucking time. Like, what are we doing down here? Flip the switch, and the lights come up. And again, that's a moment I remember with those lights coming alive inside what was a makeshift, like, broadcast studio. So that turned into me having an after-school radio show 
right? It started with 30 minutes. I would play a little music, talk a little bit, just me, and it expanded into an hour and 30 minutes. That was lion's share conversation. It was, it was, I was talking about like headline topics and what was in the news, and I was having guests on, other students. <clears throat> the lunch lady. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I wanted to understand how that cookie got so big. Yes. Yes, and why the spaghetti is so greasy. Chef Tanya, please. <laughs> Your thoughts. Uh, um, uh, so I, I got, I fell in love with broadcasting then. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, this, this is like a way I can really reach people. I'm, I'm, I felt natural at it. I was conversational with it. And, uh, people were like leaving school on their way home, listening to me. Uh, the, we had a pretty, like a decent range radius to where, People in the community could hear. They didn't have anything to do with the high school. It's just like on the dial. So uh, that was an important that was an important moment in my life right there. And then uh, coming to Los Angeles, I started training here because I had begun training in fifth grade, like boxing, like you know, uh, sporadically. But I got here and started at Wildcard Boxing Gym, which is early on uh, when the gym was close to having just open and that's Freddie Roach's gym made famous by Manny Pacquiao and Freddie Roach's relationship. They, you know, that they call it the house that Pacquiao built, but it was standing when he walked in there. James Tony was in that building. Uh, Freddie Roach has made that place the most famous boxing gym in the world. I would say even more so than Gleason's at this point. And, uh, I was a kid just like honored to train there, cutting my teeth there. And I've always loved boxing to as a sport to participate, but never compete. I started shooting sparring sessions because I was working uh, on sets and stuff at the time. And I had an idea that I wanted to be a camera operator. So I took my uh, little mini DV rig to the gym and Freddie would allow me to shoot sparring sessions, which nobody was shooting at the time. And this is like, uh, this is the equivalent of what you see when you see NFL players training, doing scrimmages in camps, and they're shooting the the, the scrimmages, and they go in the locker room, and the, the, the coach breaks down tape, tells them everything they did right, everything they did wrong, what they need to do next time. Boxers never did that. They didn't shoot themselves training, shoot themselves sparring, and then have their trainer go break down tape and whatnot. <clears throat> So the training, uh, the sparring tapes became a little business for me. I would shoot these sparring sessions, put them on tape, sell them to fighters and make myself a little bit of money. Like, you know, uh, this was my foyer into having content relative to the sport. Now, the blessing of being at that gym is that these are world champions, number one, two, three, four contenders. This is a world-class trainer who owns it. So the who's who of boxing is coming through that place. It's like being a new comedian at the comedy store. It's an embarrassment yeah. of riches. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's, it's a little bit uh, ridiculous. Like, yeah, it's like being at the cellar in New York or like, you know right. what I mean? You're, you're going to see the who's who, and I'm the only guy with a camera. So um, I, I ended up taking that kind of footage, making a business of it, and then having news value. And once that became a part of the value of the content, I started working online, putting content online at a, at a website called Max Boxing, which predated YouTube. 
You understand? This is when it was all websites and it wasn't social media like in the way you think of it now where everybody goes to one place and you have your account and you post there and everybody there looks at your account from their account. No, it was website days. It was like everybody had a website and you right. wanted to find like, you know, what.com is this person at? And you go there just to see their content. You, it was a big deal to build your own website and all this kind of shit. So there was a boxing website. And then that's where I started in journalism. <clears throat> and the sparring nature of the tapes were where the news value was. But I began to get so involved in what I felt like was a, a discovery for the fan which is what happens inside the gym, which sometimes is better than what happens in the arena that you buy a ticket to. So I called it gym wars. It was wars taking place in these gyms all around the world that nobody would have ever seen and most have still never seen. I only got one camera, only one guy at the time. And now everyone is like superstitious about whether or not you can shoot their sparring they think they're reinventing the wheel or something so they don't want you to be able to put that on tape oh yeah i hate that they're mm-hmm. very you know that's the best part of 24 7 and mayweather nobody nobody wants the sparring on tape anymore it's like come on what are you hiding your uppercut right we've exactly. seen it mike tyson threw it better than you <laughs> <laughs> jesus right. you'll even see on the documentaries even on the docs like oh well we're about to spar cut the tape you know what i mean right um, T- tyson I'm- fury cut everyone out Man, that is some of the most valuable footage you'll ever want to see. And don't forget, like back in the Ali days when you saw him hitting the bag, sparring with guys, all talking shit over the top rope with the, the journalists and all that. That's treasure. That's gold now. It's like a lot of us got to know Ali through media coverage more so even than what he did in the ring. It was what he was doing outside of the ring and the way he was talking to the audience. So I felt inspired to be a part of that kind of conversation. Uh, And so I started interviewing the fighters that were sparring, which is also wildly unheard of. Like, not only am I doing sparring footage. You're annoying them. I'm talking to the guys (laughs) about sparring. Like, bro, what what if this is not a thing? Like, what are you doing? So that's where I started. We're going to fast forward all the way to the uh, conversation of the day (laughs) with Deontay Wilder. Because what's most important... I just, I, I think I just realized that to this day is your Drake and Josh. Oh my God. <laughs> you will never escape it. <laughs> well, in the, in the sense that you're Lindsay Lohan. Yes. Um, in the Drake and Josh, if you would permit me, I would like to be Josh. Thank you. <laughs> I'm honored. So if it's my Drake and Josh, I'm Josh. Fair. I like that. And I see it. <laughs> okay. um, uh, we had a moment. That went viral. And I would say that most of the people who are hearing about this for the first time probably only know that this guy was screaming into the camera ferociously to this day, right? Yes. They probably don't know the context. They don't, maybe don't even know who the guy is. Right. <laughs> because there were so many memes created around that phrase that have nothing to do with boxing whatsoever that it's transcended the sport and almost did so immediately. And what was important about the moment was that it was actually a conversation about uh, his, his expression of his pain, of his anger, of his acknowledgement of the threat that black men in particular and people of color have been under in this country 
for centuries. And so when I asked him to explain what he meant by that, he took umbrage and took it different than the way I meant it. But what ultimately happened was Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all the platforms got a hold of that moment and made of it what neither he nor I could have done on our own. They made it an iconic cultural touchstone about um, a a split second, a phrase, uh, a a meme, like a, a 15 second meme of what was being felt by people all over the world. They're screaming that we're in pain to this day. We're in, we're, we're still experiencing this level of oppression to this day, still under the boot, under the knee of that metaphoric cop and that literal cop to this day. And so when we talk about the corrosive nature of social media and the conversation and the divisive nature of it at times, we also have to acknowledge that it can be a uniter. It can be a a flashpoint moment where I was made the villain. And I, you know, I, I have expressed on many occasions that I'm okay with that if what is required in that moment is a villain so that the expression of that kind of authentic feeling can exist in the world. And so people started to apply it, it sometimes with humor to their own experiences and their own pains and whatnot. But at its core, it was just the most authentic expression of that guy in that moment with what was on his heart and in his spirit. And he let it out because I asked a fairly simple question. It wasn't like the question was like genius, but to it your, was just a moment that was created to your point. And I, I don't know why I, I think, cause you're my friend. I feel that not the need to defend you, but like <laughs> to give context, which you talked about on Rogan, you knew what he was referring to, but you as a good journalist was like, maybe the world does it. So allow me to like give him this rather softball question to make sure that he is clearly stating for people that might not be as clear as I am about what he's trying to say. And it seemed as though he felt that he took it much more at face value and felt as though you were acting like you, you weren't aware. Right. And ultimately what happened from that misunderstanding was a better expression than I think he would have been capable of if he had taken the question in the spirit in which it was given yes. and tried to articulate it. Yes. Right? So I, you know, of course I had to wrestle with that. That was not, this is not a, a, a headspace I've come to instantly. It took me going through a process, some of which was painful. Watching people shit on you online is hurtful. Were Watching, you mad at him? No. No, no, no. no. Now, I, that part I recognized immediately, like at least when I say immediately, like in the moment, I was realizing what was happening and the misunderstanding and that this was all for some reason directed at me now. So that part was a, a hurdle I was fairly able to clear quickly. I've spoken to fighters before. I've had fighters angry at me before. I, like 
in this moment, it took me a minute to figure out why he thought I was the enemy in this uh, in this conversation. But he really, again, was speaking to his own demons, his own pain, his own expression that I think could not have been better articulated by him than me giving him that platform in that moment. And yes, uh, being the whipping post at the time. I don't, I don't regret anything I said. I don't, I wouldn't change a single bit of what happened because of what it produced. That's my job. That's what I stated at the beginning of our conversation about this is my charge to give you an opportunity to see into someone whom you thought was one dimensional, someone whom you don't take the totality of their humanity and give a, an, a sincere, genuine moment, not just to the audience, but to the individual to express themselves. And that thing now is ringing so uh, relevant in this moment. And that happened uh, two years ago, plus two plus years ago. Like, you know what I mean? It, it, these moments live forever and they're beyond me. They're bigger than him. And the fact that they're the way, you know, it was genuine. It was real. is because it already stood the test of time. It, yeah. it almost immediately transcended what it was. And people read into it and saw into it, their own pain, their own expression, their own humor, their own levity. They, people enjoy just that clip for whatever they, they see in it. To, to quote, your your dude uh Dave uh, when I interviewed Neil Brennan he quoted him and and I'm I'm not going to say it perfectly but something to the effect of like the only thing better than a great joke is an honest moment ah wow i don't even think i've heard that one I, i'll take it you know that, yeah well, that's a beautiful thing we had an honest moment and I think we're having an honest moment. We We've had are. <laughs> oh my god. Almost too honest. <laughs> um, all right. So last question I ask everyone on the Curious Podcast is what are your one or two Rahim commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else. My most important truth that I by definition can't impress upon anyone else, but Please understand that I live every moment striving to attain freedom of spirit. My spirit needs to be free. I can't be contained in anyone's prison of opinion. I can't be subjugated. I can't be oppressed because my spirit is free. Now, there can be a system in place to oppress me on many different levels, many different ways. And I'm not just talking like the government or, you know, racially. I mean, like people that are close to you can try to oppress you. People that will try to make you small. People will try to tell you what you can and can't do. And credit to my mother for allowing a child to grow up in a dangerous world whom it was a part of a very dangerous demographic in a place that in a lot of ways was unsafe. Not, we didn't grow up poor in the ghetto and I'm not suggesting that was my story, but I grew up in an inner city. I grew up in a real world. I was a latchkey kid. I was in the world making my way and she had to be brave. 
but more importantly, even than her bravery, was her generosity. She allowed, she gave me the room to figure out who I was and to try different things and find which of those things really define me. I went through phases like every kid went through. I tried different, from everything as trivial as a hairstyle, to an attitude, to a worldview, to an approach, to a, a, a lifestyle. Young, you go through these things. And if there was one thing that I'm most grateful for, it's that I wasn't stifled. And so many people are stifled early in life. So many people's are by people who love them, are limited, are not able to express themselves freely. And I never for a day lived in my mother's house where that was not a possibility for me. I could be who I wanted to be. I could say to her what I needed to say. I had to say it respectfully. Let's not be crazy. I wasn't around, running around cursing and throwing shit. Same but here. That wasn't in me all, <laughs> either. You know, that, I, I, I never tried that. You know, um, <clears throat> but that yeah, freedom of spirit is by far for me the number one commandment, and you have to guard that. You know, you, you, it's not always an outside influence that is hindering you, that is limiting you, that is oppressing you. It can most often, in fact, be you if you throw your own shackles off, if you stop stopping yourself, it's a lot more difficult for other people to stop you. If you recognize that you're the one in power and in charge of that aspect of your life and your reality, your experience, then someone from the outside trying to control that or trying to make you control it for them becomes much, much more difficult, right? And my second commandment would be to never stop learning, right? Like, I think I'm good at some things. I think I'm decent at my job. I mean, I, I'm flattered that you consider me one of the best. I'm a little taken aback that I'm not the best, but you know. Um, Who else we is strive. there? We have I both. I don't even know anyone else's name. That, that's what I was thinking. There's some Max Kellerman guy, but you know, that's, a, that's some legacy nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and to your point, like, oh, Max Kellerman, um, Jim Lampley, obviously uh, the old heads um, are all authentically themselves. They did what they did with their moment. And I have to be who I am in my moment. So it's not, if I reach the type of visibility <clears throat> of another broadcaster or sat in the seat of uh, another journalist, that is not a goal for me. I need to find my level. I need to reach my height. No, no one else will ever be or has been Radio Rahim. Nor could I be any of these other guys. And so people like to say, you know, um, you're this guy or you remind me of Marv Albert or, you know, any guy that they admired or liked or experienced. And I get that. I'm like, man, the fact that you think of me at that level of connection is what inspires me. But 
what that person offered you, that perspective, that lens through which you saw the world because they offered you their perspective and their lens is uniquely theirs. And I am constantly polishing and trying to refine and focus my own. I need to constantly be learning from all those people, but most importantly, continuously open to learning about myself. And, and from, that, from that point, we can all journey towards self-actualization, constant improvement. We all challenge, we are all challenged constantly with staying positive, <clears throat> staying aware of the demons that creep in, the things that can hold you back inside yourself, the things that you don't like to talk about with anybody, but you know you have to have a conversation with yourself, have that conversation. There were times when I wasn't having conversations with myself that needed to be had, that I knew I needed to face myself about some shit, and I wasn't doing that. You were, you sure were fun during those times, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> kind of you know glad what? the conversation didn't come too quick. Really would have gotten <laughs> in the way of my party. <laughs> <laughs> and so the people with whom you were around at those times, you're not having those conversations, who are also not having those conversations with themselves, but have this just share that spirit of freedom yeah. like Josh Peck does, share that the, that insatiable appetite for learning like Josh Peck does, <laughs> ends up being a lifelong friend like Josh Peck is. Radio Rahim. I, I feel weird calling you that because I feel like that's that's how the public sees you. But I just know you as raw. <laughs> By the way, you know who my favorite my child's uh, in a wonderful Pavlovian daily response. You know who my child's favorite character is? Hmm. Elmo. <laughs> Thank you. That was it. That was Raheem. I mean, come on. That's how we do it. That's how you do it when you're friends. But you're also. Eh, you know, listen, professionals, listen, I know you think you and your friends have a good, uh, you know, uh, back and forth, a good uh, repartee, but you don't. Okay. Comparatively to a guy like me and Raheem, professionals who can also bro down in a professional sort of setting, it, it don't get no better. And I'm sorry. It just don't love you guys. Thank you for listening. Bye.